Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. Way back in episode five, I spoke with Jamie Matler over a vodka gimlet and a glass of substandard Malbec, and one of the topics that came up was authors narrating their own work. Jamie shared with me that she doesn't always consider it a bad idea, and that with a few coaching sessions, many authors can actually do just fine narrating their own work. Well, my guest tonight is an author who narrated her own book, and as it happens, she did so after a few coaching sessions with none other than Jamie Matler. Susan Purvis, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Woohoo! Great to be here. <laughs> I'm glad you could make it in. Susan, what are you drinking tonight? Well, uh, interestingly enough, I'm a, a red wine connoisseur, and I've been hanging on to this bottle of red wine by Levy and McClellan. Now, they are both some of the top winemakers in Napa Valley, and Martha McClellan is a good friend of mine, and I grew up with her on the shores of Lake Superior. Oh, wow. What a great and connection. So I, I know. And so this is one... This wine is not for the average person. You have to be a collector of wine to even be able to find it. All right. So I just online. I've been saving it. At first I thought, oh, when I sell my um, book, I'm going to open it. And then I couldn't because it's, <laughs> it's so precious. And then when I uh, my book came out, I'm like, I'm going to open it. And I couldn't. So I thought, what a perfect time to open this beautiful bottle of wine and celebrate our conversation and the launch of the book. And um, we have a lot to be grateful for. Well, I am honored that you would hold off on opening that special bottle of wine until you came in here to the speakeasy. And lucky for you, there is no corkage fee here in the speakeasy. Can I tell you? So I Googled how much it would cost for me to find it. Yeah. Should I tell you the price? Absolutely. I, c I went online and in California without shipping, uh, the bottle is $650. Holy cow. So, I know. So you didn't know how much it cost because this was given to you by your friend? Yes. That's amazing. I know. So what kind, What varietal is it? Well, it's just called, it's called, their label is so beautiful. It's called Levy and McClellan, and it's called the Napa Valley Red Wine 2005. Wow, that is amazing. And oddly enough, that's about the time when I started thinking about writing my book. So, boy, the wine is 14 years old, and so was my book idea. From book idea to um, publication was about 14 years. All kinds of connections there. That is very cool. Thank you for bringing it into the speakeasy. I am having something that is not nearly as special, but it's a classic cocktail, I believe, from Prohibition era. It's uh, in the, the category of gin sours. And it's called a bee's knees. And I had never heard of this before. And then I think it was about six months ago, my wife Jenny and I were out to uh, out to eat. Uh, or actually that night we may have just been going out to um, a bar. I can't remember now if we had dinner there or not. But anyway, there, there was this thing on the menu that was the bee's knees. And she thought it sounded cute. And so she had it and she loved it. And she said, can you figure out how to make this? So that was before I had found all kinds of uh, resources on the web for, for – um, recipes for cocktails. And so I said, I think so. So I asked the bartender what was in it. And then I just experimented uh, the next day or the day after that. And uh, after a couple of attempts, I came up with something that worked. Now, of course, I, I know, oh, well, you know, of course, YouTube, there's and liquor.com. And there's all kinds of places where you can get recipes. And the bee's knees is a classic from old times. So there are quite a few different recipes out there. But uh, it's great. It's basically just gin and lemon juice and uh, honey simple syrup. And, uh, and I like it almost as much as my wife does. Oh, are you a gin snob? Um, I'm not sure if I would consider myself a snob. I, I don't think I'm a snob in any category of, uh, of drinks. I, I sort of subscribe to drink what you like. And, yeah. um, if you, there's, there's a guy that, uh, a group that I belong to here in Tucson, uh, we meet every couple of weeks, uh, when we can at a local bar and their, um, their well bourbon is 10 high, which is a cheap bourbon. 
And he said, I think it's great. And I don't like this more expensive stuff. So I actually did a taste test and it was, I, I found it uh, very boring, but it was not bad. And I consider boring much better than bad when it comes to liquor. And if that's what he likes and he likes it more than Maker's Mark, then good for him. He's saved a few bucks. Um, I feel like if you want to put your red wine in the fridge and that's the way you like it cold, then great. Drink it at 45 degrees instead of 65 degrees. You know, whatever you like, that's what you should drink. So, Can I give you one tip from the top winemakers in Napa Valley? Sure. I was with them probably 10 years ago and I... I was overwhelmed about the whole wine business. And I noticed when I went to their house for dinner, they were drinking kind of a regular, you know, $8 bottle of wine. And they have access to the nicest wine in the world. Mm-hmm. And I said, how do you decide? And just like you said, they said to me, drink the wine that you like. Yep. If it's cheap, great. You save some money. If it's expensive, save your pennies, and that way you get to have it when you like. So I wouldn't consider myself a wine snob, but I or a gin snob, but I do like a lot of different types of gin. In a mixed drink, other than a martini with no olives, I will generally use uh, Tanqueray because I figure I, I consider that a good mid-shelf gin. But I do like trying new gins with different botanical mixes. One of my favorites right now is Opier. It's O-P-I-H-R, and it's a little peppery. And um, another one that I just tried that I really like is Drum Shambeau. It's an Irish gin, and uh, it's got it's got tea in the botanical mix, and so it's got a real earthy kind of undercurrent. So, uh, so those are two of my favorites. But this is just made with Tanqueray, kind of my daily driver when it comes to gin. Anyway, Susan, thank you for coming into the speakeasy. Cheers. Woo! <laughs> so, Susan, where are you from? So I grew up on the shores of Lake Superior in northern Michigan. Cold. So a couple blocks from the beach. So my world was uh, going to the beach, running around in this old mining town. The town had been built out, you know, 150 years before. And lots of old Victorian homes and lots of family and great friendships. A really special place on the planet. That's cool. Do you get back there to visit much? I do, and I just went and did a book event there, and I did nine events. And oh, wow. people came out of the woodwork, my friends. I even had my English teacher from eighth grade up on the stage with me. That's fantastic. I'll bet she was very proud of her former student. Yeah, well, it was a man, and when it was his first um, job, and he had us write DJ. His name was Dwight Johnson, DJs, PJs, which are personal journals. So in even in the eighth grade, I started writing personal journals um, in class, and I put some of those personal journals up on the um, screen at the university, and um, he would critique everything we wrote. That's fantastic. So, um, so that's where you're from originally. Did you go to school in that area? No, I came out to Montana, which is where I live right now. I live in Whitefish, Montana. But when I was in high school, I came out to Montana backpacking, actually with my winemaking girlfriend and her family. And I fell in love with Missoula, Montana. So when I was 17, I left uh, my hometown and went to university um, in Missoula, Montana. Oh, well, that's cool. And what was it about Montana that you liked so much? Well, we did a two-week backpacking trip. And it was the place where I had to grow up and learn some leadership skills, you know, because, you know, as teenagers, we get lazy, our parents do everything for us. So I got my ass whipped on this backpacking (laughs) trip, crossing over logs and roaring over roaring rivers, uh, snowing, raining, ticks, a marmot ate half of my boot. (laughs) And I was responsible for my own well-being. You know, of course, I ate the gorp. You know, all the gorp on the first, you know, day, which right. meant gorp for the next two weeks, yeah, right? bad planning. <laughs> so I got, I had to, I grew up very quickly after being challenged in a really extreme environment. Well, that's good. So what did you do? We'll get back to the challenging in a second, but um, what did you do uh, in school? What did, uh, did you get a degree? I did. So I wanted to pursue a career in the outdoors. So this was in uh, 1980 when I went to university. And I thought, you know, what can a woman do in the outdoors? I didn't really want to be into 
forestry, like, you know, what else could women do and make a living out outside? I, you know, I was kind of broke. My parents didn't have much money. Mm-hmm. So, hmm, right. So I became a geologist. So I looked at rocks for a living for a very long time. No kidding. Geologist. And what's the, uh, what's the employment situation look like for a budding geologist? Well, back in the, you know, in the mid eighties, gold exploration was taken off. So what I ended up doing then say from the early nineties till, uh, the mid two thousands is I became a gold exploration geologist, uh, looking for gold in Latin America. What part of Latin America? Well, my husband at the time and I ran a office in the Dominican Republic, la República Dominicana, <laughs> y México también. And is there a lot of gold there? Well, it turns out, see, I didn't know any of this either, but, you know, when Christopher Columbus discovered the new land, he landed in the Dominican Republic because all the natives were wearing free gold. Ah. So one of the largest gold deposits in North America, um, or in the Northern hemisphere was on that Island. No kidding. I did not know that. I know most people don't. So there was a big gold, um, exploration kind of boom in the early nineties. And my husband was the kind of a Caribbean, uh, structural geologist. He had a master's degree. And so we were hired to go down there and explore for gold. Now, I know you weren't expecting any of this story because you haven't read my book. No, but... that's that's fantastic, though. That's uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so we um, we were kind of cut loose to explore the island. Um, we worked in Mexico. We've worked in Tobago. So I know that I know that there are um, kind of work, working our way over to skiing. Um, the big question that comes to mind is. How did you get into adventurous skiing activities when you were working in Mexico and the Dominican Republic? I know that there are very high peaks in Mexico. I've seen some Warren Miller movies where they went up. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's like 19,000 feet or something. But um, but it just seems like such a, a change in climate from Montana to, to South America, the Dominican Republic anyway. Uh, and I, I'm just wondering how you got into the big skiing adventure stuff. Well, I'll tie it back. So growing up in northern Michigan, it it's actually the ski hall of fame is in uh, near my town. And we grew up, you know, with feet of snow. So I ski raced as um, a teenager. Okay. And one of the things I did, remember I told you I came out to backpack in Montana. Mm-hmm. The other thing we did was we would go to ski racing camp in the summertime in Mount Hood. So we'd get on a bus of all these teenagers from Michigan and drive to Mount Hood, which is in Oregon, mm-hmm. in June to ski racing camp. And I would always come through Missoula. Ah. So skiing was always a big part of my life. And yeah. I, well, one of the things I questioned was, well, could I, you know, how do I combine skiing and the outdoors? How can I make a living doing that? Because there's no manual how to do any of this. Right. And I, my career was way outside the bell curve as a female. And so here's what happened then. My husband and I could live anywhere we wanted to because we had to commute to work and we had a huge expense account. So we chose the last best ski town in Colorado at 9,500 feet, which was called Crested Butte ah. and we commuted to Latin America. Oh my gosh. I had one foot in the mud and one foot in the snow for 20 years while I was, you know, living these two lives, which we haven't really talked about yet. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's quite a switch. Um, so you and your husband did that for how long? Oh, let's see. I met him in the late eighties and we parted ways in two, 10 years ago. Okay. So, you know, almost like 20 years we did kind of did this. That That is quite quite a length of time, um, splitting your time between super cold and uh, not nearly as cold. Uh, and, and I suppose I should say, uh, what what is the title of your book? My book is called Go Find 
And I know that you cover a lot of different things about what you go and find, which we can get into. But the reason that, I, that I'm asking all these questions about skiing, I, I'm sorry, I should have set this up earlier, is that you, uh, well, describe the, the primary thing about your skiing background. Well, I, for me, skiing is the way. Like, I continue to ski. It's part of my life. For me, I, I try to spend, you know, days, weeks, or months skiing because it gives me joy being in those crystals and being an, out in the mountains and exploring new terrain. But, but the point of the title, Go Find, is because of your activities on search and rescue teams, right? Right. So, so here's what, you know, my book's called Go Find, My Journey to Find the Lost in Myself. When I was working in Latin America with my husband at the time, something was missing in my life. I didn't know what it was. And I felt really alone down in the Dominican Republic because I would just get, you know, kind of dumped off in the middle of nowhere, you know, working with the campesinos, which are the local subsistence farmers, you know, exploring. It was dangerous. I was on a drug trade route. My husband was on a lot. And I thought, God, you know, we're down here way too much working our asses off. Like I got to get back to, to what's important to me. And you already knew at that point that being in the snow and skiing was super important to you. Well, it was in my radar. So I decided, I told my husband, I'm like, I, I'm going to go to ski patrol school. So I did ski patrol school, not in the Midwest, but at the gnarliest mountain in Colorado, which is a huge avalanche prone area. And I said, you know what, I need to try something else. So I signed up for ski patrol. I was one of two women in this, you know, 50 hour course. And it was there I learned about an avalanche that buried three toddlers across the street from this world-class ski resort. Um, while they, these toddlers were waiting for a shuttle bus to bring them back to Houston, Texas, where they lived. Oh my gosh. And so when I heard this story and the ski patrollers were telling me about it, they said, well, their avalanche dog came to look for the kids. And I'm like, well, what did the dog do? Wow. avalanche!" (laughs) And I said, did the dogs find the kids? And they go, no. And I'm like, what do you mean the dog didn't find the kids? Isn't that the dog's only job? And their answer to me wasn't good enough. They couldn't tell me why the dog couldn't find the kids. And it was in that moment, sometimes we just have moments in our lives where I said, I wonder if I got a dog and trained it to save a life, vowing to never leave anyone behind. And that set me on my path into this whole new world search and rescue, avalanche rescue, water rescue. I didn't know anything about avalanches, how to train a dog, but I dove right in two feet. Wow, that's great that 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 story could have such a profound impact on you and what you ended up doing with the rest of your life at this point. I know, and in book writing and in narration, you know, we call that an inciting incident. Mm, yeah. No, right. that's, that's great. So, um, so how long did you do that before? Well, so take me through how long it took you to get a dog and to train a dog and to train yourself in, in search and rescue and all of that stuff. I'm sure that this was not a, you know, 50 hour class. Well, I took the 50 hour class. Um, the next month I got married because I was actually, he was my fiance down in the Dominican Republic. We'd been working down there five years and then I became an EMT, which is an emergency emergency medical technician because I wanted a job on ski patrol and that's the requirement I had to have. Mm. And then a few months later, I bought a five week old black lab puppy and I named her Tasha and right out the gate, we started training. Now there was no dog training going on where I lived. So I had to join a search and rescue dog group in Colorado. I had to join a local search and rescue team. I got on ski patrol and I had to go find mentors to help me train this unruly, rebellious, stubborn little black lab puppy. And I had (laughs) no idea what I was doing. So uh, I want to go back to something you said a minute ago about the fact that there were two women in the uh, ski patrol course that you did. And I assume that there were quite a few people more than two. So was the search and rescue also um, mostly male-dominated? Yeah. So 
Um, I don't, I think I was probably the only woman in search and rescue. Um, I was one of a handful of women in a 50 patrol, um, ski patrol program, but the search and rescue dog teams, you know, it's mostly run by women. So I found mentorship and support and love, um, driving around Colorado, learning how to train my dog with all these really awesome women. Oh, that's great. So, so that one little niche area was, uh, had a lot more women involved. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. You know, and so people ask, why is it that women train dogs, you know, more than men? Then I think it has a lot to do with, you know, you know, the men, I hate to say it, are probably out, you know, working, you know, from eight to six every day. They don't have the time, maybe say that some women do, you know, training a dog because you have to spend a lot of time with the dog to really understand all its nuances and to oh, create yeah. bond and communication. Yeah, do you have abs- a dog? absolutely. Well, I do have a dog. Yeah, she's she is a senior citizen at this point. She turned six, oh, sixteen a month ago. No, almost two months ago. Yeah, she's a small dog, and um, she is pretty much completely deaf at this point, and probably half blind, maybe more. I don't know, but um, she's still, you know, just kicking along. She loves lying out in the sun. So I am a dog person and I, we got her when she was four months old. Uh, I know that the younger they are, the more of a handful they are. And she was a handful at four months. <laughs> so I'm, I know that it's a, uh, a lot of work to train a dog in general and to train a dog for a specific task, I know takes a, a huge time commitment. Yep. It was all consuming. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, uh, so how long were you then doing search and rescue and avalanche and working with a dog and all of that before you decided I should write a book about this? <laughs> uh, well, I, I hate to wait, you know, to give away the ending, but I did this, my dog lived till she was almost 14. So I, wow, uh, that's, that's quite a ways for a, for a lab. Yeah. I worked her till the bitter end. She got her, uh, actual paying job as you know, I was never accepted on ski patrol with her. That's, you know, all in the book. But finally, when she was 11 years old, we got hired to be an avalanche dog team outside of Boulder, Colorado. And, um, so she finally kind of got paid to be an avalanche dog, which is really great. great. But in the meantime, for over a decade, we were a volunteer search and rescue dog team for the state of Colorado. We went on a lot of missions, saved a lot of lives, had a lot of closure for families, and we didn't even get paid a bag of kibble for our efforts. Wow. I'm really surprised. Yeah. So it's probably like the $100,000 dog I like to call her because that's, you know, between all the time and money I put into training her, um, it's an expensive endeavor. Yeah. No kidding. I'm, uh, I'm just a bit surprised that for a for a job like that, it's uh, it's all volunteer. And and is it all volunteer for everyone who does it? Yes, unless you're on a ski patrol team. But the you know ski patrol uh, handlers usually don't leave the ski area, and you know there's not a lot of avalanches happening in ski resorts right. except for this year, because um, Arizona right now, New Mexico had uh, I don't know if you're following that recently. They, no. Taos just had um, two deaths inbounds this winter. Wow. No, I had not heard that. Yeah. So in general, you know, what, so here's one of the, the points in my book is that all I wanted to do was train a dog to save a life. And I was going for it. I just wanted that validation. My God, I can train this dog to do anything. And what you start to realize, and in, especially in avalanche work, there aren't, there really aren't that many live saves. I mean, in North America, there might be like three live finds with a dog in avalanches. Because I, yeah, I have to guess that 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 the reason it's so rare is because, from my understanding, I, I just recently listened to a story on uh, NPR's Hidden Brain, um, and the story was not specifically about avalanches, but it was about a woman and and. When her husband was buried in an avalanche, the the things that her thought pro- how how her thought process worked after that um, in certain cases, but she told the story of her husband being buried in an avalanche, and it goes with a lot of the things that I've heard um, that it's an in- incredibly traumatic experience, and it's not like you have to be buried by three hundred feet of snow. 
it, it can be a fairly small amount and necks get broken and within a very short period of time you can't breathe. And so I'm, I'm not too surprised to hear that the statistics are not good when it comes to survival. Yeah. So, um, so my grim reality was, wow, like I, you know, we find dead people. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like we find dead people. So then, so I ended up getting certified in avalanche. We got certified in wilderness search. We got certified in water and then we started dabbling in, you know, human remains, which Mm -hmm. I went to a chapter in my books called cadaver dog boot camp where I go outside of Seattle and train to how to find, you know, human remains in all kinds of crazy places from like thimble size bits to, you know, a hundred or 200 pound bodies. So at some point it goes from search and rescue to search and recovery. Yeah. A lot, most people I know get into search and rescue because they want to help. They want to feel useful. They can learn new skills and we, you know, we want to save a life. And then very quickly we learn, wow, like, you know, we find bodies, mm-hmm. especially dog handlers. We, I like to call myself in the book, like the cleanup crew. We're usually <laughs> the last to be called. Um, dogs find people when humans can't. And, you know, so, you know, the, over the decade career I had, we found, you know, we mostly found deceased people. Either they were drowned in the water you know, deceased in the wood, victims of crime, mm-hmm. caught in avalanches. Yeah. But what's learned then is that, you know, we're really rescuing the survivors. Yeah, because that's, that's important too, is the people who are left behind. Yeah, because without that closure, they would wither away and die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's got to be tough. So you did that for 10 years and... And was that when you decided you would write a book or had this been percolating for quite a while? I, since I was in third grade, I knew I was going to write a book. I just had no, to that's go. Great. That's great. So that was like an avocation was, was writer. Yeah. And I knew I had to go live the story to tell. And, you know, most of my career was, you know, living these adventures. I mean, I'm an Explorers Club member. I'm one of 800 women in the world in the Explorers Club. I have lived a life of adventure. I've been on all seven continents, the hottest, the coldest, the highest place on the planet. And I never had the courage to write because I thought, hmm, who wants to listen to my story? But this story overwhelmed me and it was a story I had to tell. So n- no different than training the dog to save a life. I had to now, when that career was over, I had to go figure out how to write a book. To sure. save my own life. You know, yeah, and so I'm, I'm sure that took a while. It's the same process, it took me 10 years. Yeah, wow. So, when you were writing it, were you thinking, Oh, I'm gonna make this an audiobook too? No, wasn't I even didn't. wasn't even in your mind. No, so then how did it happen that you ended up putting it on audio? Well, because I uh was uh, my book was purchased by Blackstone, which is as far as I know, the largest, uh, audio book publisher in North America. They're, they're large. I don't know if they're the largest, but they are definitely very large or a huge player. So, so they picked up your, your print book. They picked up my print book. Wow. And was that because you submitted it to them or did they just hear about it and contact you or what happened there? Well, here's what I do know. And I don't know if it's accurate, but you know, they were the leaders in audiobooks forever. And there's a great documentary about, you know, um, Craig Black, who started um, Blackstone Audio. And, but what's ha- been happening is, they, you know, they were doing all the big books. They were doing everybody's books. But audiobooks have taken off over the past, you know, eight to ten years, as you know, because you're the audiobook expert. Yeah. Well, I don't know and, about expert, but I do know that uh, I think it's been – uh, double digit growth in audiobooks for at least the past three years. I think it's the past five years. So yeah, they've, they've absolutely taken off. Yeah. And so the big six publishing houses are hanging on to all their audio rights. Mm-hmm. So they, well, you know, maybe four years ago, Blackstone, Blackstone said, what? We need to get our own authors then. So they started a hardback division. So I believe I'm the second nonfiction writer 
And um, they have only been great. They're like family to me. And part of my contract or my negotiation um, with my literary agent is that I maybe had the option to read, to narrate my book. That's great. And so when, when Blackstone picked it up and they were going to publish it, did they talk to you about audio right away? No. Well, nobody really talked to me. I knew like they had said, well, and you know, you have the option to narrate your book. And I'm like, okay. And I kind of filed that away. Mm -hmm. And then we were getting close to publishing time. And I thought, I'm going to, you know, life is hard. Training a dog to save a life is hard. Writing a book is hard. So when I decided I was going to narrate my book, I didn't really know how hard it would be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm, sure, I'm sure there are going to be a lot of listeners here who are not surprised yeah. to hear that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, it can't be that hard. Ah. So um, I said to my literary agent, yeah, tell Blackstone I'm going to narrate my book. All right. So they had me scheduled to go to Oregon because that's where their headquarters are. And I finally said to my agent, I go, I think I need some uh, counseling, not counseling or coaching, because I have no idea what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I can barely, you know, I'm not, I'm not a voracious reader. I slur my words. I mumble, stumble, bumble. And I don't articulate very well, as you can, you know, I'm on this interview. I'm probably doing okay, but. No, you're fine. But, but so you went to them. They didn't come to you and say, well, okay, so you want to narrate your book. That's great. We're going to go ahead and do that, but we're going to get you a coach. You actually went to them and said, I need a coach. Yeah. And also that, you know, I had to try out. So they're saying, yeah, but you know, we're not just going to take anybody. So you, you know, you have to show some that you can read and, you know, articulate your words. And I said, well, I need help. So I asked for help. So they had me booked to go to um, Oregon, you know, at some point to narrate my book, like maybe two months before my book was coming out. And I said, no, 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 I need help. So one day they arranged uh, for me to have a conference call with Jamie Matler. I didn't know Jamie from anybody. I don't know anything about the audiobook business. Okay. Okay. So um, I thought, all right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a um, a Skype call, just like we're doing. Mm-hmm. So in the meantime, I thought I better go practice. So I was on my way to Canada to go to go skiing, and my I go, oh, this is great. I'm gonna drive for my friend's gonna drive me for eight hours. I'm gonna read my book to him. Well, it turns out my friend's kind of deaf. So I had studded snow tires going down the highway at 70 miles an hour. Ooh, and that's I'm noisy. <laughs> shouting at him as I read my book. And I did this, you know, for basically seven hours on the way up, seven hours on the way down. Oh, my gosh. Next day, I have my first meeting with Jamie. And I had a, two of my friends in the room. And I'm full of drama. And I'm shouting at her. I'm, you know, stuttering. And making mistakes and she's like whoa 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 (laughs) she's like sue the microphone's gonna be like an inch from your face (laughs) there is no shouting in audio books that's great i'm like oh are you kidding me i go i just yelled at this guy for you know 15 hours now he's even more deaf than he was when i started (laughs) (laughs) so she I'm sure I'm going to put words into her mouth, but I can, oh, I can, you know, I read through what she was saying. She's saying, you are a hot mess. This is not how we do it. Here's what you, if you want to work with me, you need to do these three things. And I'm like, oh, okay. Just like training my dog. Okay. I'll do whatever you say, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay. Cause I don't know. Tell me, what do I need to know? Mm-hmm. And she told me these three things. She said, you need to, Read every day for the next two or three weeks until our next call. And she's like, and I don't want you to read your stuff. Oh, so she had you practice the craft by reading other people's words. Yeah. Nice. No, I need to read my stuff. She goes, no, 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 no. And then she said, you're going to do it, you know, in the privacy of your own home. And then you need to read to somebody else. And then she said, you need to start listening to 
audiobooks. And I said, all right, give me three audiobooks. You know, then I'm going to download them. And she goes, you need to listen to these three audiobooks. So I downloaded those. And what did you think when you heard them? Had you listened to any audiobooks before that? Yeah, I had an audio uh, audible account. And, you know, but you, you know, when you're a listener, you don't think about the, you know, the point of view of the reader. Um, generally speaking, that is correct. Uh, <laughs> so, right? yeah, so, so you did have an account, but it sounds like you were not an avid listener, not always listening to audiobooks. When you were listening to the books that Jamie recommended, um, and you were listening to it with a critical ear because you were going to be narrating, what, do you remember any thoughts that you had? Oh, yeah. So they were two, um, memoirs and, Oh my God, they were so good. So not only are these like, you know, New York Times bestselling authors, but their reading was fabulous. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh my God, I just like sunk into my chair going, I'm never going to be able to do this. Oh no. So it was, so it was good listening to it, but it also was, uh, it also gave you some uh, negative thoughts as well. Oh my God, because. These, I mean, they are talking like you would see them, you know, in your living room, like, la, 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 you know, full mm. of sarcasm and, you know, emotion. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that is not me. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I practiced every day, but I did cheat because I read my own book. Because <laughs> I had to be fluent in my book because I had never, you know, I hadn't read it. Sure. And... So this gets, the story gets better. So, you know, two or three weeks goes by and I meet her again and she just randomly picks something, you know, she said, go ahead and read this. And so now I'm by myself, you know, my microphone's right in front of me. I'm not shouting. There's no more drama. And then she's like, read it, read that line again. And she's like, where's the emotion? You know, read it again. You know, how are you feeling? You know, when you wrote this? tell me, you know, what that means to you. And so I had to sink into this deeper emotional level because nobody draws that out of you. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, for someone who has no training, I mean, I, you know, look, looked at rocks for a living and saved lives. I didn't go into this emotional, even though I wrote the book, I didn't have to express myself verbally. Yep. Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, I had to be like, in my same voice be some other character that I was writing about. And I didn't know how to do any of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I learned from her is that as the narrator, I'm using my same voice to represent somebody else too. And then she goes, all right, here's, you know, she gave me another assignment. Keep reading. Cause you're not quite good enough. <laughs> and we'll meet back in two more weeks. And we'll decide if you're going to get the job. So I practice and I practice and I listen and I listen to everything. And then I finally, I, I, even on my third um, conference call with her, you know, I stumbled a little and she said, all right, Sue, you're not going to Oregon. You're coming to New York city. I will be your engineer. I will be your coach and we will do this together. That's and great. I'm, so she was so she, so she directed the process as well. I'm like, no way. <laughs> I assume that's no way in a good way. Yeah, and I go, why? And she goes, I'm going to tell you why. You know, she goes, you know why I chose you? Because she could have handed me off to the person in Oregon, right? Mm -hmm. Or she could have said, nope, I'm going to find somebody else. She goes, you know what? Because you you listened to what I said and you did everything I asked of you. That's great. That is the, the best thing that you could ever hear from a director is, oh, you took my direction and you did what I asked. And you know what? It's the same thing with all my mentors. I did everything they you know asked of me. Mm -hmm. And even my dog did everything I asked of her at the end. Mm -hmm. She always found everybody. And I went, oh, my God, like this is so there's no you know, there's no ego in it for me. That's fantastic. That, that, that's great that you got the coaching beforehand. Uh, there are so many pieces of this that uh, that I'm that as a narrator who uh, frequently has talked to authors about narrating their own work and about the difficulty 
the the difficulties that that may arise if they try that. I, I never tell somebody, no, you can't do that. But I do warn them, look, if you want to, you need to know a lot before you go into this. And so there are so many pieces of this story that resonate with me and that uh, that I'm that I'm really happy to hear that you were actually the one that went and and told them I need a coach. And then you got a fantastic coach and and you did everything they asked. And then they actually wanted to work with you as the director. So how was the process of recording the book with Jamie as the director? <gasps> that's a, so that's good, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, so, oh, I know what I was going to tell. So now it's April. Jamie said, good to go. I said, oh my God. So I stopped drinking in April. I went on a strict diet. I exercised and studied my craft from April till June, 70 days. Nice. And because I knew this was the most important thing I would ever do in my life is narrate my audiobook. That's great that you were taking it so seriously. I took it so seriously. So for a person who loves the red wine every night, I did not drink for 75 days, I think. <laughs> I, so my Blackstone brought me to Book Expo. I was one of their featured authors. I had a banner in the front of the Javits Center. And that was just last year, right? Yes, 2018. I was at the industry parties. I had my fizzy water and lemon. Like, you know, I could have partied down because, like, I did it. I made it. Mm -hmm. And I did not have any anything to drink. And then after book expo i met jamie at her studio in manhattan at 10 a.m mm -hmm. i'm like 10 a.m are you kidding me <laughs> over. but you know that's the new york way right yeah so i get there and i'm i'm just all sweaty i'm just so nervous i'm sick i didn't sleep at all the night before and then we didn't get my final manuscript till 1130. And then she's like, let's take lunch. So, and then she's like, Oh, at 4 PM, um, we're done because I got another client. And I, at 4 PM on the first day, we were only on page 11. Wow. So I, I want to back up for a second. So you said you didn't get your final manuscript until 1130. Um, but at that point you had already written your book, hadn't you? Yeah. But you know, I think we had an older manuscript. Like, so, you know, at 10 o'clock, there's a manuscript there, but we're like, wait a minute, that's not the right manuscript. Oh, and so there, so there had been, uh, ed edits that had, that had, uh, been made after that. Yeah. Okay. And we're getting to know each other and she's got a dog and we had to go have a smoothie <laughs> and, you know, it was like 1130 before we got started. And then she's like, well, let's take an hour of lunch. And then she's like, you got to leave at four. And I'm, I'm swear to God, I'm on page 11. So you're probably thinking, this is never going to happen. And she's like, oh, we'll be done by Thursday night. And I have a 120,000-word document. Oh, yeah, that's a long book. <laughs> yeah. But I was saying. And she's like, oh, we'll get it done. And my flight was out Sunday morning. Okay, so Tuesday comes along, you know, Wednesday I mean, on Wednesday night, I think I was only like halfway through my book. I'm like, oh my God. But I'll bet you had gotten a lot of direction from Jamie along the way, and that made everything move incrementally faster as you were moving along. Yeah, but here's my, you know what? Here's my naivete. I did not know this. I didn't know, I never asked, and this is for all your listeners, is that you can do a line over and over and over and over and over again. Like, I didn't know. I thought I had to just go in there and be perfect. <laughs> I didn't know that we could constantly cut. I, like can't, the, I can't tell you how happy I am that you were wrong about that. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I'm like, how am I ever going to do this? Yeah. Yeah. No, that, so, that, that happens frequently. And, in fact, uh, it often comes up in the, in the forums online. Uh, people are concerned about how frequently they have to stop or how many mistakes they make. And um, the the seasoned vets will come in and say, no, it happens all the time, all the time. And that's why 
you record using a certain method and then you just pick it up and you do it again. And then if you have to, you pick it up and you do it again 10 times, whatever it takes. Um, and that's totally normal. And uh, one thing that has been said many times by a, a well-known audiobook engineer is that um, most people, including top-notch narrators that have hundreds and hundreds of books under their belts, stop more frequently than most people probably think they do. So it's, it is not uncommon at all. Well, the, and this is great to get out there because, I, you know, I just didn't even think about it because I'd never really, you know, been in that situation where mm -hmm. the cuts, the edits. I mean, I admire anybody in the sound production business because, you know, I know Jamie's listening and reading and if the emotion's not there, cut, cut, do it again, even down to a word. Mm -hmm. I think my record was I had to read a sentence 12 times. I'm like, Jamie, if I have to read this sentence one more <laughs> time, I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> you know, she's such a perfectionist. She's like, it's not good enough. And you're just saying it, you know, that last word is not right. Mm -hmm. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, that's... He made me shine. That's good. That that's great. I'm I'm not surprised to hear that, knowing what I know of Jamie and um, the high level of respect that she has in the industry. So, you, but you did get it done. Did you get it done by Thursday? No, not so quite. Then huh? Friday came along. So now it's the weekend, right? Mm -hmm. So what? Here's what's in, interesting, because she is editing the best she can, but then she sends my files to Oregon, mm -hmm. which is headquarters are and I think there's two people with ears and eyes on the sound and the manuscript yep and they're three hours behind so by the time you know we leave at five or four in the afternoon you know it's only noon there so they and then I, we do the pickups the next day mm -hmm. so now uh it's Saturday and all the people in Oregon have to stay mm. right Mm -hmm. The weekend, yeah, because mm, I'm supposed to leave on Sunday morning, bright and early. Right. And then, I mean, I'm still reading the book on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, I'm still, like, have two or three more chapters Saturday night, I think. Mm -hmm. And then the whole, you know, they have to send it. I think we finished Saturday night, you know, late. Wow, and then, and, and then you were flying out on Sunday. Yeah, but I could. I had to change my flight because they had to send it to Oregon. They weren't going to let any, you know, and we had to wait for the pickup Sunday morning. So I had to change my flight. Got it. All right. Uh, right. Wow. But you know, like the dedication and the discipline from everybody is, I was blown away that how important this is to everybody. That's and really that, that's really good to hear. I got to say. Um, because you know, the, it's, it's easy sometimes to think, well, this doesn't matter or that doesn't matter. And I'm, I'm always a stickler for myself, but, but what you need is other eyes and ears on it. And it's really good to hear when there are people involved in, um, you know, the, the larger organizations that do this, uh, that they really care about it too. They care. I mean, it wasn't just Jamie. I mean, like, you know, she's not even home till 10 at night. And then she's sending it to a whole production team in Oregon, mm -hmm. and they're there over the weekend for just one my book, you know. They but they do this for everybody's book. Yeah, no, that's good. I'm I'm happy to hear that. So you you got it all done, and you flew flew back home, and they put it all together. And was it was it designed so that it was coming out exactly at the same time that the print book was, or was was the print book already out at this point, or how did the timing work? Yeah, so that was in June. So I went to Book Expo, uh, and then I did my narration in June. My book was not coming out until October 2nd. So it all got done at the same time, and it all released at the same time. Well, that's great. That's always uh, – well, I, I think that that's always good when that happens. I don't know any of the numbers, but I'm pretty sure that that's a desirable situation. Um, so have you listened to the completed audiobook all the way through? No. And are you going to? <laughs> I think if I get trapped in my car, um, it's funny, I'm going on a road trip tomorrow. I'm like, oh, I wonder if I'll get trapped in my car. There's a snowstorm coming, but I have it downloaded. But, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, it doesn't interest me. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it doesn't interest me. I, I suspect that it would interest you a lot more and that you would be much more interested in listening to a full version of your audiobook if somebody else had narrated it. Right. Now, listen to this. So a few of my friends have had their memoirs done by, you know, third-party narrators. And, mm-hmm. you know, I get comments from them and they say, oh, my God, it's so awful. It is so awful. And I go, well, why didn't you read it? And they go, I never was given an option to read it. Mm. Um, so there's a huge disconnect, you know? Yeah, I could see how that could happen. Um, on the other hand, huh. given given your experience, I'm sure that you could also... I mean, think about how your audiobook would have gone if you had decided on your own, if you had self-published your book and you had decided on your own that you were going to narrate it and then you did that and you got that published without having the expertise oh. of somebody like Jamie. It would have been crap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Right. So that, so that's the other side of uh, in, in the situation of, you know, anybody that you've talked to who is not happy with how their memoir came out. Um, it's uh, the other side of that is, well, you could do it yourself, but if it's not done right, you might end up being just as unhappy with it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I have so much respect for narrators. I mean, it's a huge, beautiful uh, craft. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I think it's pretty exciting for anybody who's narrating. It's got to sure. be super fun as yeah. a profession. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of good things about it. Uh, we There are negatives too, but we don't need to discuss those. Um, yeah. Do you have any plans to write any more books? Yeah, so I am. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. Um, my book is about me training my search and rescue dog Tasha. So my next book is going to be for um, like 11 to 15 year olds from my dog's point of view. Oh wow! My I'm an, my dog's going to have her voice now. So in a way, I get to you know it's kind of creative nonfiction. I get to step away from. You know, it's my voice, but it's really my dog's voice. That was great. That's great. They ever going to pick on humans? And I'm sure that as close as you have to get to a dog that you're partnering with for an for an activity like what you were doing, you probably got to know your dog better than most people get to know their dogs. Yes. So here's I'll say a few things, kind of to end this is, you know, I had to sell my my manuscript, and I here was my pitch. How come it's easier for me to jump out of the side of a helicopter with my avalanche dog in my lap at 13,000 feet to sit to find a dead guy than it is to talk to my husband about our relationship together? Mm. So why is it that human, you know, we can bond with our animals, you know, so intensely than we can with our human partners? That's that's interesting. And so that's that's your next book? I mean, well, aside, no, aside from the, the dog's point of view? No, but that was like this book. Like, you know, how is it that I could train and bond with this, you know. Oh, I see. I see. So you went into that in Go Find. Yes, that yeah, was my okay. with, with Go Find. And, right. um, you know, so no, my dog's point of view, I still have to like work out that storyline, but, you know, that you know, what's a dog's purpose, right? There was that film, but you know, dogs are meant to do what they're supposed to do. And, you know, um, uh, luckily I gave her the opportunity to pursue all of that she was supposed to do, right. Which is to hunt and to find. And Mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. And young adult books, YA is a a huge genre. I I can imagine that that book for that age range would have uh, a good audience. Yeah. So what words of wisdom do you have for any authors out there who might be considering narrating their own work? I mean, you talked about talking to authors who have had their memoirs done and then they were not happy with it. But what what kind of advice would you give to somebody who would have a memoir that they were going to be doing and they were saying, I'm just going to do it myself? Well, they need to hire somebody like you. I mean, you need to get your hands on the professionals like any other discipline, you know. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. I would not be the right person to hire for that job. But um, but I I totally uh, hear what you're saying. Uh, somebody like a Jamie Matler um, or, or, or other coaches. There are um, several other coaches. I think that uh, Sean Allen Pratt would be a very good choice, too, just because since he focuses on nonfiction, 
um, I'm sure that he would be able to offer the same types of um, same types of advice that would help somebody narrate their own work if it's a memoir kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the memoir, the powers in in the uh, writer's voice. I mean, you we have to own that. Like, if we're gonna write it, um, we got to read it. Now, here's what I'll say. Here's what I learned when I was reading my own words because I had never re- really read it out loud. I'm like, oh my god, my sentences are way too long. Like, what was I thinking? So the words of wisdom for any author is read your book out loud 17 times before you publish your manuscript because you're going to cut, cut, cut and make your sentences a lot shorter. That is so interesting. That that topic, um, I have seen that topic come up several times uh, where authors are asked, now that you've had a, a book, one of your books produced in audio, do you write differently? And I have seen several times authors say, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I would agree. Yes. Do mine's going to be quick, short, fast, sassy, fun. Yeah. And uh, of course, in nonfiction, it's not quite as important, but a lot of people uh, complain about attributions for for statements or sentences by characters. And if you have somebody who's acting it, you don't need that nearly as much as you might Mm -hmm. think you do in a print book. But and so, Rich, to end this, I have a question for you. Sure. What can you, um, what words of wisdom do you have for any, like I'm about to write my next book, like you just shared that with me, but what would you recommend then? Because it all goes into audio, right? Because that's the way. These days, yeah, most things do. Or at the very least, uh, you should consider that as a likely possibility at some point in the future. My my biggest um, thing is pretty much what you just said. Read it out loud as you're writing it or just after you write it. It's not like you have to read every sentence as soon as you write it. It's just that read it out loud and see how it sounds. Or if you have somebody, a friend, a significant other, whatever it is, who can read it for you the best that they can. They don't have to be a professional narrator, but if somebody can read it out loud, that will give you a sense of how this would sound if somebody is listening to it. Unfortunately, because you're so invested in the words that you've written, um, I don't think that you're going to get a 100% accurate view, but I think that it really, really helps to hear it, and, uh, and, and that will help you construct the the narrative in a way that will be more conducive to people appreciating it in audio. The other thing that, that I would say to authors specifically uh, who are thinking about narrating their own work is a general be aware of what it takes to make a good audiobook. And, um, you know, some people strongly recommend against authors doing their own work Some people don't strongly recommend. I don't strongly recommend against it, but what I strongly recommend for is doing the homework and finding out what it is that makes an audiobook work and then decide whether or not you can put in the time up front to be able to do that. And I would say that your experience is ideal. You're an author and you're approached with the possibility of narrating your own book and you end up, you know, going with a coach who is very well respected, and then you get that same coach as the director for the audiobook. That that's ideal. Not everybody is going to be able to have that experience, but um, but it's a it's it's a great way to go. Hey, Rich, one last question. Sure. What does make a good audiobook? Well. Ooh, that's a <laughs> that's a tough one. Uh, I I think that to give a short answer to that, I would say it's all about storytelling, and if you can feel like somebody is telling you a story and they're telling you a story, they're not telling a story for everybody. They are telling a story to you for for your benefit. Um, that to me is what makes a good audiobook. It's it's all about storytelling. Anyway, th- this has been great. Sue, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you if they want to find you online? Uh, SusanPurvis.com. And that's P-U-R-V-I-S, right? Yes. All right. And, uh, and your book is on Amazon. I can, uh, I can add a link to that in the uh, – and Audible, of course. Uh, I can add links to those in the, uh, the show notes.
Great. All right. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming into the Speakeasy. I hope that that wine was as good as the price tag would lead you to believe it should be. All right. Thanks, Sue. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Susan Purvis for coming in. I really enjoyed hearing about her experience narrating her own book, and I hope you did too. As always, you can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our Speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated, as it helps me keep the lights on here in the Speakeasy. Special shout-out to Kim Robinson for her generous donation to the Speakeasy recently. Kim, thank you. I really appreciate your support. Until we see you here in the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Thank you.